Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, those listeners who have heard about Holland versus Brackeen will know that that Supreme Court case is about considering the Indian Child Welfare Act that aimed to keep Native communities together to be race-based and therefore unfair and unconstitutional. Opposing the actual mission of those who want to eliminate the Indian Child Welfare Act is just reality, the reality that made the act necessary in the first place, and the reality that will likely ensue if it is repealed. We'll learn more from Jen Deerinwater, who writes for Truthout, among other outlets, and is founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. But first, a brief look back at some recent press. For some time now, news media have been conflating crime, homelessness, and mental illness, demonizing and dehumanizing people without homes, while ignoring the structural causes leading people to sleep on subways and in other public spaces. With New York City Mayor Eric Adams' latest announcement that he would hospitalize against their will unhoused people with mental health conditions, even those deemed to pose no risk to others, in the name of public safety, New York's local papers once again revealed their propensity to highlight official narratives and try to erase their own role in conjuring this crime hysteria that's driving such ineffective and pernicious policies. As Fair's Julie Holler writes, Adams' latest plan would loosen the current interpretation of state law, which allows police to involuntarily hospitalize people with mental illness only when they pose a serious threat to themselves or others. Now, Adams declares, those also eligible would include, for instance, quote, the shadow boxer on the street corner in Midtown, mumbling to himself as he jabs at an invisible adversary, close quote, and, quote, the unresponsive man unable to get off the train at the end of the line without assistance from our mobile crisis team, close quote. The next day, the New York Times front page the story with a piece by Andy Newman and Emma Fitzsimmons that led with the conflation of homelessness and crime, quote, acting to address a crisis we see all around us toward the end of a year that has seen a string of high-profile crimes involving homeless people, Mayor Eric Adams announced a major push on Tuesday to remove people with severe untreated mental illness from the city's streets and subways, close quote. Well, as Fair's Olivia Riggio was pointed out, unhoused people are far more often involved in crimes as victims rather than perpetrators. But most media coverage suggests the reverse. And if Adams and other city leaders were truly interested in helping homeless people, their responses would not lead with tactics like arrests and forced hospitalization and clearing of encampments but instead on policies that have been proven to address the struggles of the unhoused and the root causes of homelessness, like providing supportive housing and long-term services and tackling systemic inequality. But snore, because public safety as a reality, is not the same thing as public safety as a story. 
You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. On November 9th, the Supreme Court heard the case Holland versus Brackeen. You might not have seen much about it. Media coverage has been spotty. I will drop us into the center of it with the lead of our guest's recent piece for truthout.org. Quote, Anywhere colonizers have invaded, indigenous children have been separated from their communities, whether through boarding or residential schools, Child Protective Services or Outright Murder, the theft of indigenous children destroys tribal nations, which is what's at stake in the U.S. Supreme Court case Holland versus Brackeen, close quote. Nominal plaintiffs in the case Chad and Jennifer Brackeen fostered a native child whom they subsequently adopted, but were upset that they might not be able to as easily adopt his half-sister. As with many Supreme Court cases, their story is not the story, which extends far beyond them. It requires critical, thoughtful, human rights-centered storytelling to untangle an intentionally snarled story to explain what and who really are truly at stake. Jen Deerinwater writes, as I note, for Truth Out, she's also founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism. Welcome to Counterspin, Jen Deerinwater. Hi, thank you for having me on. Let me ask you to begin with why uh, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, why was it demanded and passed? What, what does it do? So this nonpartisan act was passed because it, it was found prior to ICWA that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were being removed from their homes by state welfare and private adoption agencies. And of those 85 of those, 85 percent of those children were being placed with non-Native families, overwhelmingly white Christian families, even when there were good homes with relatives and tribal members available. So the point of ICWA, this nonpartisan act, is to help keep Native children with our tribal communities. You know, as you, you read in the intro, you know, a, a crucial part of colonization of, of the genocide of Indigenous people is taking our children. You know, if you take away our future generations, then we cease to exist as Indigenous people and as sovereign nations, which is really a lot of what this case is about. Even with ICWA in place, which is called the gold standard of child welfare policy, just so listeners know that, we're still finding that uh, uh, Native children are still being removed at a rate of two to three times that of white children, and they're rarely placed with relatives and Native and tribal families and community members. Native families are the most likely to have children removed from their home as a first resort and are the least likely to be offered any sort of family support interventions to help keep their children. So that's, that's the importance of ICWA and where it's coming from and, what, and, and why it's so important. But now the way that it works is also different than how one might think. Right. So this doesn't apply to all Native American children. It applies to Native children who are either enrolled in a federally recognized tribe or are eligible for enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. So that's really important, and that is something that non-Native press has often gotten wrong about this. They have not 
use that distinction, which is very important because what's so much at the heart of this beyond just the genocide issue is tribal sovereignty and the potential overturning of tribes or sovereign nations and really trying to turn us into nothing more than a race of people. And if you say that we are just a race of people, then something like ICWA becomes illegal under, you know, race-based discrimination laws in the country. But really, what the other side wants is the overturning of tribal sovereignty. You know, they say that this is about protecting Native children, but that's not what it is. It's about overturning our sovereignty so that non-Native interests like casinos and oil and gas can take our resources. And they're just willing to use our children as the fodder in order to do that. Well, as you say, the repercussions are huge. And I don't know that folks just sort of um, skimming the issue would understand that this isn't Chad and Jennifer. This is Gibson Dunn, right? The law firm. Correct. Gibson Dunn and their clientele have a much bigger picture in mind than Chad and Jennifer, which is what you're telling us. But if we could start at the epicenter, which you've started to say, what could be unleashed by the dismantling of ICWA, first of all, on Native people and Native rights. Just talk a little more about that. Yeah, so I I see this as an ushering in of uh, the termination era, which I, I wrote a bit about in my, my piece of truth out. So is a bit of this brief background. The night In the 1950s, the federal government, Congress, who Congress is the only one who has any legal authority over federally recognized tribes, which is also part of what at stake, you know, the argument within this case. But the termination era of the 1950s, the U.S. government came in and basically terminated its sovereign nation-to-nation relationship with, with many tribes. The numbers that I have found vary a bit, but it was over 13,000 tribal members lost their recognition status. Several tribes in Oregon and California lost their status, which was also based in taking the lands in Oregon and California and and selling them off to non-Native interests. There were also changes to criminal jurisdiction. Um, Native people were relocated heavily to urban centers. Uh, There was a relocation program that came during this era that the federal government came in and said, you know what, you can get good education, jobs, we'll get you housing, all these things if you move to cities. And as they have always done to us, they broke their promises. You know, our people got to cities and were put in the worst neighborhoods, kept in destitution, you know, no good jobs, no good health care. But suddenly you're away from your native community, you're away from your tribe, and you're not it's very interesting the way it kind of works in this country. You know, my tribal citizenship for the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma doesn't end when I leave my reservation any more than my U.S. citizenship ends if I leave the so-called U.S. Right. But a lot of my trust and treaty rights, they kind of, they diminish. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. I have a trust and treaty right to the Indian Health Services. However, there are no IHS services anywhere near where I live. (laughs) Yeah. So by relocating us, even though we're still, you know, citizens and members of sovereign nations, we still have these trust and treaty rights. It was a way of breaking up our communities and taking away our rights to exercise 
um, or our ability to exercise these ways. Yeah. Now, with this case, Holland v. Brackeen, I really see that as ushering in another termination era. Quilmot Nation Vice President and President of the National Congress of American Indians, Bon Sharp, told me in an interview that she really saw us as already being in a termination era and that this case could just move it along even further. So I sat in the court. Yep. It was an over three-hour hearing, and it was, I'm not going to lie, it was quite difficult to sit through. There was a lot of really insulting things being thrown around in there. But one of the questions that kept coming up is, is tribal citizenship, is it being a citizen of a sovereign nation, or is it simply being a racist right. people? Right. That's at the um, core of it. Yeah. That seems to be at the core of it. Yeah. Right. And what it was so, what's so infuriating, which... I don't believe I've ever seen this talked about in any non-Native press ever. (laughs) Um, But you don't have to know anything about Indian law in order to graduate from law school, to pass the bar, to serve as a judge, to serve on the Supreme Court. And Indian law is part of constitutional law. It's part of federal law. We have people graduating, becoming lawyers, becoming judges that know absolutely nothing about this. And this is very scary for Native tribes as so much of our our very ability to exist goes through the court. It was just really scary. The only person on the Supreme Court who has any experience with Indian case law is Justice Gorsuch. The rest of them have no experience, and it was very clear that they knew very little about us. Even the justices that I know will rule on the side of tribes, it's still some of what they said. It was just so clear. They don't even understand who and what tribes are and how it's different than being a race. Yeah. Maybe explain that a little bit. Maybe maybe tell folks, you know, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So, one, I want to say that race is a social construct. Race is something made up. Ethnicity is real. Culture is real. So I want to say, that first of all, I believe that race is just a construct in general for everyone. But for Native people, you know, I'll use my tribe as an example. You know, I want to point out Cherokee Nation is the largest federally recognized tribe in the country. We have more resources than a lot of other tribes. So not all tribal nations are in the same circumstances. I want to make that very clear. But my tribe, for example, just passed a $3.5 billion fiscal year budget for 2023. You know, our principal chief, if you want to have some comparison to the U.S. system, which our U.S. federal government system was actually based on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy's tribal system, but our principal chief is our president. Our tribal council is our Congress. We have a Supreme Court. We have a marshal service. We have a health care service. You know, we are, Forbes just named us one of the top 10 employers in the state of Oklahoma. You know, we are not a race that you just check on a box. You know, I vote in tribal elections. I see this as like my citizen to Cherokee Nation is no different than my rights as a citizen to the U.S. But I think, one, there's a level of ignorance on the part of the justices and and, and the lawyers, everyone that just don't understand what tribal sovereignty is. But I think it's also very intentional. You know, like Matthew McGill, who argues for the Brackeen family, uh, McGill also argued uh, 
for energy transfer partners to put access pipeline, which is very fiercely fought by Native people from around the world. Even. Yes. Um, but McGill actually said during the hearing, quote, citizenship is a proxy for race. Well, citizenship is not race. No. You know, it was very frustrating. And there's a level of ignorance, but there's also a level of intention that it's very clear. They know what they're doing. They know what they're arguing. And they know how all of these cases move together. You know, Gibson Dunn, the the law firm representing the Brackeens, who they actually went looking for the Bracken family. The Brackeens didn't go to them. They actually represent, uh, I believe it's two of the world's largest casinos. Right. They, they just filed a casino-related uh, lawsuit in Washington State. You know, they know what they're doing. They know. And the states know, too. Well, that's exactly it. You know, Gibson Dunn has filed a complaint that tribal gaming is unconstitutional. They're using the exact same argument that they're using in Brookine. And so we're looking for journalists to, like, zoom out and connect those dots. Like, why is it in their interest to abolish tribal rights and what will ensue as a result of that? But I, I, I wanted to to talk about media in the sense that Again, coming back to tribal rights, Standing Rock and No Dapple, like, introduced a lot of media coverage for folks, and and a lot of it was good. But I was struck by a a New York Times article that was talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline, and they they counterposed it. They described the opposition as tribes who, quote, viewed the project as a wounding intrusion— onto lands where generations of their ancestors hunted bison, gathered water, and were born and buried, long before treaties and fences stamped a different order onto the plains, close quote. So to me, this is corporate media doing Native Americans as like a Pinterest page, you know, but also talking about treaties as something that, you know, are just in a misty past and certainly not a legal reality. I just wonder what you make of media coverage in general of this set of issues. I mean, I think non-Native media coverage of pretty much all Native issues is pretty deplorable. You know, I feel like even when I read things written by non-Natives and I can tell that they're friendly right. <laughs> to Native people, Native issues, they still, their ignorance comes through, you know, not properly citing people. You know, I, I was interviewed by Mother Jones a few years back and I told them, you need to say that I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. If you don't say that, it's wrong. And they still just listed me as Cherokee. Well, that's not accurate, right? you know, but with the New York Times, for example, we'll go with the more egregious example. The New York Times doesn't have a single native journalist, not one. In fact, I believe it was in this last year, they even published uh, what we would call a pretendian, which is a non-native who is faking native identity, you know, so they have a long history of doing really horrible things to us, but their coverage of of Holland D. Brackeen and, and ICWA in general, because ICWA has actually been legally challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act. Right. So this is all very, very complex. But their coverage of it has been pretty awful. 
you know, I read the the article that they wrote right before the court hearing mm-hmm. and right after the court hearing. And, you know, there was a lot of racism in there. There was a lot of sort of factually incomplete um, reporting. You know, for for example, they actually said in one of those articles that before the Supreme Court hearing that the Brackings kept a, quote, low profile. <laughs> but they actually didn't. Uh, Jennifer Bracken had a whole blog where she talked about the entire process of stealing these Native children from their families. She also says that they knew that they weren't legally going to be the first option for adopting a Native child as well. Right. Um, you know, New York Times didn't talk about how the Brackens have still been allowed to adopt at least one of these Native children. You know, they, they didn't talk about that. You know, how can the Brackens assert that they've been racially discriminated against when they still got what they wanted? Exactly. And, you know, I was frankly irked by a Time story that started off saying that the case, quote, primarily pits the Brackens in Texas against the U.S. Department of the Interior and five tribes, close quote. Yes. And then later they say, oh, well, actually, uh, a brief on the case was endorsed by 497 tribes, and they were signed Mm -hmm. by 87 members of Congress and 23 states and the District of Columbia and the American Academy of Pediatrics and the AMA and the APA all said that ICWA helps redress physical and psychological trauma. And yet the headline is like families against the state. It's such a misrepresentation. I I read that article. I remember that. When I read that, I went, huh, well, this is off to a bad start. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and it was, it was either that article or another. This was also something that's been very upsetting that I've seen across non-Native press on the ICWA case is that they don't often talk about how many of the children who are removed from their homes are not being removed because of abuse. It's generally a welfare issue, sometimes even poverty. I mean, some of these people who are arguing to overturn ICWA are saying that, you know, these these families that want to adopt these children have money and resources, so they're a better fit for raising Native children than Native people are. You know, the New York Times didn't mention that, but they did mention that both mothers in this Brackeen case, the Native mothers, had tested positive for methamphetamine. So they have no problem portraying us as, as having, you know, all being drug addicts and bad parents, but they don't actually talk about the reality of the system. And they don't talk about, as was pointed out by Chairman Sahisi Hill of the Oneida tribe in Wisconsin, and that I said earlier in data, Native families, are the least likely to get any sort of family support to help them so that they can be reunified in issues of, we'll say, drug use or other trauma. You know, it's also the New York Times didn't acknowledge the fact that we Natives, we're still facing genocide. We are all struggling with trauma. But there's a reason for it, you know. Uh, There's just so much that was left out and that was just done so poorly. You know, they also, when they talked about Navajo Nation, because the Navajo Nation is involved in this case, uh, because both of the children, the Brackeens, are, are after our Navajo Nation, as well as one is Cherokee Nation. But the New York Times, every time they talk about Navajo Nation tribe, they just say the Navajo, yeah. which 
is a little confusing and also a little insulting. They're they're a tribe. They're a government. They're not showing that. They're not they're not actually putting forth what this story really is. It's all I'm not sure whether to say it's just sloppy, poor journalism or if it's purposely misleading. I'm not sure which one it is. I, I hear that. The way that elite media talk about tribes and tribal law makes it sound as though we're supposed to think it's kind of a joke. You know, we're not, not, that's not for real. Like, but what if we, what if we want the resources that are underneath them on their land? I mean, obviously we don't need to honor anything that existed from the beginning of this country. I I just feel there's an unseriousness with which elite news media address indigenous issues. They do, absolutely. And there's also a reason for that, Mm -hmm. beyond the fact that we're not employed by them. But also even Native media has issues reporting sometimes because of access to government. You know, I learned from a Native journalist friend of mine who works for an established news organization that they've been denied a press pass for Congress for hearings because they're owned by a tribal government. Well, much of our native press is owned by tribal governments because we wouldn't have press otherwise. But the congressional press people say that that means they're a foreign agent, so they can't have access to press passes for for Congress, which is just wild. So, So which is it, U.S. government? Are we foreign agents? Are we sovereign nations? Or are we just a race of people? You know, make up your mind. And the fact that this just gets laughed out of reporting is just maddening. You know what? I'm going to end it right there, but just for today. Um, we've been <laughs> speaking with Jen Dearenwater, Executive Director at CrushingColonialism.org. You can find Jen's work there as well as at TruthOut.org and other outlets. Jen is the co-editor of Sacred and Subversive, and you can also find her work in the anthologies Disability, Visibility, and Two Spirits Belong Here. Thank you so much, Jen Dearenwater, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. One program note. Last week on the show, I confused uh, creepy former Trump official Mike Pence with creepy former Trump official Mike Pompeo. It was Pompeo who called teachers union leader Randy Weingarten, quote, the most dangerous person in the world, close quote. I apologize for that. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them and transcripts on our site, FAIR.org. That's also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, and to show much appreciated support for the show, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.